It's an exciting time to be in Unamagi, Cape Breton. We're having an economic renaissance. We believe that Nova Scotia can be the battery of Canada. Throughout this series, we'll show you why there's never been a better time to invest in Cape Breton. I've been using the word transformative, and a good friend has used the term nation-building opportunity. This is as big as the railway. Welcome back to Invest in Cape Breton. I'm your host, Michelle Sampson. In this third episode, sponsored by Bearhead Energy, we're exploring the transformative offshore wind and green energy projects in the Strait of Canso. The Strait of Canso is the water body that separates mainland Nova Scotia from the island of Unamagi, Cape Breton. It's deep, and until 70 years ago, water flowed freely through it. People and goods had to cross it by ferry. But then, a massive infrastructure project connected the two sides for vehicle and train traffic. It wasn't a bridge, but a causeway made of 10 million tons of rock blasted from adjacent Porcupine Mountain. An unintended consequence of that project was to create the world's deepest ice-free port, right on the Great Circle route, and thus an industrial hub that can be served by the world's largest ships. That industrial legacy has seen its ups and downs. But many local players who are in the know are saying that the trend is swinging upward and expected to reach an unprecedented high. The driving force behind it is the global movement toward decarbonization. As discussed in Episode 2 about the Port of Sydney, Unamagi Cape Breton is home to world-class wind resources, and that opportunity is going to be tapped here on the south coast of the island, too. As someone who is raised in the Strait area, Richmond County in particular, the conversations I had for this episode were incredibly exciting. I almost couldn't believe what's coming. But the guests I interviewed are as in the know as they come. Two government leaders and two corporate leaders who are on the ground and ushering in this new green economy. Let's start with the government leaders. My name is Amanda Mumberkett, and I am a community innovation lead with the Nova Scotia Community College and an elected official, the warden of Richmond County. And I'm here in my role today as a co-chair of the Strait of Cancel Offshore Wind Task Force. Hi, my name is Brenda Chisholm-Beaton. I am mayor of the town of Port Hawkesbury, and I'm also here representing as a co-chair for the Strait of Cancel Offshore Wind Task Force. Amanda and Brenda are lifelong residents of the area and throughout their careers have been working to create good conditions for investment. I asked them to share a high-level view of the area's key assets. Brenda kicks it off, followed by Amanda. I always love to talk about our multimodal transportation hub here in the Strait. Uh, so we have a airport five minutes away. We have rail. I think the, the rail that goes uh, to Point Tupper is the, the last rail line uh, going to the island. Uh, we also have excellent road connectors. I can't stress enough the importance of our ice-free deep water port. And of course, uh, I love being a, a cheerleader as well for the uh, Marine Institute and the Nova Scotia Community College uh, here in Port Hawkesbury. I'll just maybe build on what Mayor Brenda was saying around the, the deep water harbor here. It is capable of accommodating the world's largest fully laden uh, ultra-large carriers. So that's, you know, 500,000 deadweight ton vessels that we can accommodate here. And that's not the case uh, for a lot of other, other ports on the eastern seaboard. We do have designated anchorage here, so which allows uh, transloading and transshipment. We've got uh, the common user facility under the management of the Strait of Kansas Superport Corporation, which is 
an incredible asset. They do a great book of business. And we are central here to offshore resources as well, right? And so having had the experience of Sable Offshore and and uh, building on that experience and not just from an infrastructure perspective, but also from a relationship perspective and, and uh, you know, understanding that we need to be building relationships with other stakeholders and rights holders in the region. So we've got a lot going for us, I think, in the Strait of Canso um, that sort of sets us apart. And it's been interesting, you know, I, Personally, I've been talking about these competitive advantages that we've had for the last two decades. Yeah. And now to see industry interested in locating here and telling me about the comparative <laughs> advantages, I feel like a little bit like I've won the lottery or that my Same. message is out there in the world, you know, a little. It's, it's very gratifying to see you coming back. These compelling assets have drawn large companies, including but not limited to longtime corporate residents, Port Hawkesbury Paper, Martin Marietta, and Nova Scotia Power, as well as newer players in offshore wind and green energy, like Everwind Fuels and Bearhead Energy. For all of the above, another competitive advantage that has been resonating is that the area is pro-growth and friendly to industrial development. Amanda says this isn't marketing spin. It's been true for a long time. We've had a culture of welcoming industry here for many decades. You know, if we look back to the establishment of the Point Tupper Heavy Industrial Park, the Milford Industrial Reserve in Guysborough County, you know, there were some pretty forward thinking councils and, and local leadership making these kinds of decisions. And, you know, frankly, the, the benefit has been that industry has located here. So if you if you get on a boat in the Strait of Canso and you you sail up and down it, you're going to see a lot of private sector investment along those shores. So it cannot state enough how important that that you know that readiness is when companies come knocking on the door uh, absolutely the only thing that i would add uh in addition to all the great comments amanda has made is the the great efforts from local leadership as well um political leaders business leaders you know we have a really strong chamber of commerce as well you know that really lends to that openness and preparing uh our region for for growth on top of these favorable conditions, Everwind and Bearhead also found great sites in Point Tupper that were already serviced and had existing infrastructure. That made locating here as easy as possible. And I think, you know, with Everwind and Bearhead, you know, both looking at the Point Tupper area in particular and looking at the heavy industrial park there, the assets that were in that park um, really are second to none. Everwind's purchase of the New Star facility um, you know, gave them an immediate footprint here. It's, it was absolutely part of the reason why they've chosen to, to locate here uh, was because of the quality of that facility and the potential that it has to support moving away from fossil fuels and moving into a more clean energy future. And certainly from Bearhead's perspective, the incredible investment that had gone into the uh, former Anadarko site, that represents tens of millions of dollars right there. Um, in terms of, you know, what, why they would choose to locate here. So we, we did have some very unique assets that were I think, part of the mix in making these two companies in particular choose uh, Point Tupper. And there's more land available? And there is more and land. And there's more land available. And also <laughs> just to add, like, that's how we know these are real projects because there's real dollars, like real investment uh, yeah. going into our region and have gone into our region and continue to be invested in our region. You know, so that's how we know this, this is happening. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. 
there are tens of millions of dollars being invested in a very fast way by companies who who are driven, frankly, by leaders that if they can't make this happen, no one can. Right. It's it's a it's a pretty uh, strong uh, group of folks that ha- that have decided to push these these projects forward. When I look at the Everwind project, I look at the inclusion of Bodledek and um, Member Two and Buckingham as mm-hmm. equity partners in the project. Yeah. You know, that's a real concrete action that's being taken by one of these developers. And, and Bearhead has been doing some, you know, excellent, you know, partnership development with their First Nations partners as well. So it really speaks to, I think, the commitment of the teams behind these projects. And, you know, frankly, it's a level of commitment that I think is fairly unusual, um, you know, to see so early on. Because you got to keep in mind, these clean fuels projects weren't announced five, six, ten years ago. They've, they've been announced within the last two years. And so it's a it's a very quick timeline of progress that's happened already and a lot of money being invested right here in our communities. So with that foundation of geographic assets, existing infrastructure and a culture of collaboration, the Strait area is poised to scale its energy sector to new heights. While this region has been powering Nova Scotia for the better part of a century, soon it could be powering much more than that. Here's Amanda. When I think about the part that we have the opportunity to play on a global stage to export clean energy to some of the regions that need it the most, that are energy starved, that are that are currently getting their energy from unethical regimes, you know, it's it's really a, an incredible opportunity that we get to meet this climate imperative, but also this social imperative, right, around responsible energy production and consumption. And so, like, I really I see there's there's a ton of opportunity uh, in the energy sector, and of course, in fields that will support the, that sector, such as supply chain type businesses, marine services, and shipping. It really is mind boggling to think about the opportunities ahead. Um, I think the other thing that, uh, you know, we're going to be poised for growth in is on the manufacturing side, because once we are at a point where our levelized cost of energy for clean energy is at a very competitive rate, um, it's going to attract ma- more manufacturing interest in this region. And if you think about our history in the past on Cape Breton Island with, you know, steel and and that type of thing, right, we, there's an opportunity for us to be, I think, uh, looking at, at green manufacturing in a whole new way. Um, that will set us apart from a lot of other locations in North America. So far in this conversation, we've talked about clean energy and hinted that this growth and development will be powered by wind, particularly offshore wind. But why wind rather than another kind of green energy? One of the biggest factors may come as no surprise to some. Nova Scotia has offshore wind speeds that are some of the best in the world. To give you some perspective, Michelle, you know, when Mayor Brenda and I attended the uh, Wind Europe conference in Copenhagen mm-hmm. a couple of months back, you know, we were talking with a lot of folks who were looking at uh, offshore wind development. You know, I think there was some, a group from Korea in particular, yeah. like some, you know, and they're, they're talking about, you know, six to seven meters per second uh, in terms of their wind speeds. And when we're starting to talk about ours being between 10 and 11, you know, they are very envious of us very quickly <laughs> because it, it's just an incredible opportunity for return on investment. Um, when you look at installing these types of infrastructure, it's expensive work, right? Mm-hmm. And so knowing that we've got that wind to support the return is a big, big deal. Yeah, no, Amanda's correct. So, I mean, Cape Breton has always been windy 
And yet, <laughs> it seems like it's just in recent years that we're we're talking so much about wind energy. So what has been the catalyst? Like, what has changed to really bring this to the forefront? I'll jump in and just start sure. by saying, you know, a number of years ago, there was a private company that had kind of brought this opportunity to, uh, to my, my attention, to Mayor Brenda's attention. We, you know, just it was pointing to the opportunity around capturing some of that offshore wind resource. Um, and so I know both of our councils at the time issued letters of support, um, you know, in principle, I, I would say for, you know, for this kind of discussion or exploration into this industry around the same time as well, you know, we started to hear a little bit about a person in our community from Dundee, um, who, who is now living in Denmark, uh, Agir Res uh, Insights is, is, uh, owned by Scott Urquhart. And he had been doing some research into, of course, that region is far ahead of us, right? In terms mm -hmm. of, they're about 30 years ahead of us in terms of developing this resource. So he had been doing some research into the wind regime in this region. And uh, we started to kind of hear about what the opportunity could look like. It really led to the municipalities kind of getting together with, um, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and other stakeholders and rights holders to say, look, this is, this is bigger than any one of us is going to be able to handle. So let's form this task force. So right now, our task force has got over 30 signatories, uh, multiple municipal uh, units. Uh, we've got provincial and federal reps at that table. We've got First Nations communities at that table, fishers, um, you know, other in industry, supply chain businesses. It's a diverse collection of folks who are interested in advancing the sector and, and doing so responsibly. So, Absolutely. yeah, so it, it was a question from industry but also some really important and unbiased research from, you know, from a company that has had decades of experience in this and who also happens to have a particular interest in Cape Breton Island because he's from here. So exactly. <laughs> Which the stars so aligned. <laughs> Thanks to that catalyst and local buy-in, the wind resource and the expertise to leverage it is now here in the Strait area. Just how big is the opportunity? Here's Amanda again. I've been using the word transformative and a good friend of ours who helped to uh, get the task force started has used the term nation building opportunity. That's what this is. This mm -hmm. is as big as the railway. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is as big as it gets because we are in a position. Little Cape Breton Island has been an energy hub for our province for nearly a century. We are in a position now to become an energy hub globally. And that is an exciting prospect. You know, when we started to understand what the resource uh, was looking like in terms of offshore wind opportunity, um, we realized immediately this could be transformative. You know, we are we're staring down the barrel of elimination of coal energy production by 2030. Um, we know there are lots of jobs in this region that depend on that right now. We need to be able to plan for what's next or we're going to have a big hit. Right. And I think we had an environmental responsibility to do so as well. Um, so, so we began to lobby the provincial government in particular, but also the federal government um, as a task force to take a look at this opportunity seriously, to publicly state that they are interested in exploring this opportunity. Because without that public statement and the public discourse that would follow, you know, really nothing was going to get done. Um, and so we we're really gratified to be recognized, I think, you know, by uh, Minister Rushton at uh, an announcement uh, September or two ago yeah. talking about, you know, yes, we, we are interested in this and establishing a goal of having uh, five gigawatts uh, in, in the waters, right, in the, in the coming years. And so that was a huge, huge step forward for us. 
I think without the work of the task force, as particularly the diversity of the membership of the task force, I'm not sure we would have been as effective in that advocacy work. Nation building opportunity. Wow, right? The Strait of Canso Offshore Wind Task Force will be making sure that the opportunities don't come at the expense of something else, like residents, existing industries, or the environment. Further, they'll be making sure that the opportunities are inclusive so that no one is left behind. The task force has already been very busy, with more than 50 presentations to municipal and First Nations councils and community groups under their belts. These presentations are about educating stakeholders, as well as listening to what they have to say and addressing their concerns. For example, they heard concerns about whether green hydrogen production would deplete local water resources. Brenda and Amanda want to ensure residents that the municipalities won't be taking any chances on that. They're confident that green hydrogen will use much less than the heavy water plant that the utility and the watershed were able to accommodate in the past. But they're still doing a new study, just to be sure. Let's take a quick break to learn about this episode's sponsor. Bearhead Energy is one of North America's only fully permitted green hydrogen and ammonia sites. They have been working closely with local communities and Mi'kmaq nations for nearly two decades and look forward to continuing to build relationships and bringing economic benefits to the region. Bearhead Energy is a wholly owned subsidiary of BAES Infrastructure, a diversified energy company focused on developing, constructing, and operating energy transition projects. Learn more and sign up to receive updates at bareheadenergy.ca. So far in this episode, we've heard about Bearhead Energy and Everwind, but there's another player in the Strait area that's looking to harness our wind resources. I am Carlos Martin. I am the CEO of Bluefloat Energy. Spain-based Bluefloat Energy is a relatively new but fast-growing developer that specializes entirely in offshore wind. They have projects in 10 different markets on three continents. They quietly arrived in the Strait area a couple years ago with ambitious goals. Well, our goals in the, in the Strait of Kamsau region is really to set up the um, offshore wind industry in Canada. Uh, we believe there's a major potential for offshore wind development in the region, both because there's a fantastic wind resource, World Plus, uh, that is a source of, of wealth for the region, and we are keen on uh, helping the local communities harnessing this power. But we believe that beyond that, there's also a very good opportunity to transforming uh, the local economy uh, to industrialize the area, build new capabilities that are able to deliver those projects and go beyond the boundaries of Nova Scotia or even Canada and uh, develop a hub for offshore wind development in the whole uh, northeastern part of America. Our aspiration is to be the leader in the development of the market in, in Nova Scotia. And I think today we are perceived as the most reliable and um, committed company in the development of this industry in the province. Creating an offshore wind industry in Canada will be a long road. They're aiming to complete the first projects by the end of this decade. But even the longest roads start somewhere. For Blue Float, their first step in any new market is to put boots on the ground and build trust with the local communities. We like to engage early. We like to be present early in the development of our projects because the only way for projects to be successful and sustainable is by uh, being connected with um, the different local stakeholders and serving for a common purpose of social, environmental, and economical development. So, so far we have met with uh, all the um, uh, 
municipalities, uh, the administration, but also meeting uh, other very important groups like uh, First Nations, fishermen, and so on and so forth, to explain what our plans are, but more importantly, to listen from them what their aspirations are and what they can advise us on how to turn these projects successful. An interesting thing to note in regards to the fishing industry, Blue Float won't just be learning about it through their engagement efforts. They also have some internal expertise. Stephen Graham, their stakeholder manager, used to be a fisherman and comes from a fishing family, so he has knowledge of how the industry works. As for the First Nations communities, Blue Float is taking extra steps to meaningfully engage with them. First Nations, as I was commenting before, are uh, very important for the success of this project. We are developing these projects in a land that has a very long history, and they concentrate the knowledge about that history. There's so much we can learn from their traditions, their stories. We need to incorporate that into, into our developments. It's very interesting because we have a presence in 10 different markets worldwide. Um, many of these markets have other type of indigenous communities. I was in July in New Zealand and Australia, met also with the communities in, in New Zealand, with um, traditional owners in, in Australia. And it's very interesting that all these communities have shared values around the respect for the elders, uh, the importance of tradition, the importance of the oral tradition, the attachment to the um, cultural heritage, and a very special relationship with nature. The concept of nature is probably different than the ones we have in, in our societies today. One of our, of our counterparties remarked that our old tradition in Europe, for example, used to be very connected to, the, to nature. The, the old Greeks had a very similar connection with, with nature. So it has been a little bit lost due to industrialization, but it's good to go back to the roots and consider nature as our own mother, our own father, and we won't do harm to, to our own family. So it's a long relationship we need to develop uh, with those uh, First Nations. It should be based on trust, and it's, it's trust built over time by commitment, by listening, by exchange of perspectives. But it's definitely based on, on listening, and that's what, exactly what they're doing. Across all of the groups they're engaging with, Blue Float is hearing some common themes. So we'll be hearing strong messages about aspiration of uh, doing um, not so, just something that can be uh, beneficial for the economic development of the region, but creating something which can support the global effort um, against climate change. Uh, and that can be a force of good uh, for the regional, the um, national, um, and the world economy. But we have also heard about concerns because everybody wants to uh, develop this industry in a very environmental and conscious manner and socially conscious manner. So um, that's a strong message we have incorporated into the way we do things from the outset. And we are, we are very much committed to continuing this dialogue and to make sure that all these projects can be done in a very respectful manner with the existing uh, activities, economic activities, including fishing with the cultural heritage, especially for First Nations, and in such a way that the local communities can definitely benefit from these developments. Is addressing these concerns something that is um, within 
current technology and, you know, are there unknowns about it or is it maybe safer than people think? Well, it, it definitely is less impactful than some people fear. And um, the good thing about this dialogue is that it's a very good way of um, communicating both sides, of educating each other, both on the existing activities and on how this new technology works. And that first step is already uh, very productive because many of the fears that exist dissipate relatively fast because people realize that it's less impactful than they, they, they had feared initially. Just to give an example, people, when they think about offering, think they're going to see a huge turbine next to the coast when that's not the case. Turbines are very far away. They are seldom visible and, um, and, and the visual impact is very limited. But the same happens with um, fishing, for example, in which many times people fear that it's going to be very harmful for, um, for the local ecosystems. It's usually the opposite. It's usually a good shelter for many species. And uh, over time, experience from other markets show that there's a potential for uh, bigger patches and, and more life to, to, to grow around these, these wind farms. Now, the conclusion we, we've come not just here, but in, in other markets is that there's always good solutions, technical solutions to address problems. That's usually not the big issue when developing these projects. The, the, the bigger issue is understanding what are the concerns, what are the potential impacts. And for that purpose, this early phase of engagement is absolutely critical because what we're doing right now is to map what are the um, implications, the impacts, the interactions that need to be taken into account during the development of our projects. When you understand those very clearly at the beginning, there's always ways of addressing through design, through new technologies, through location and so on and so forth. But if you don't listen um, to these concerns early on, that is very difficult to, to address them. And changing things when um, projects are really advanced is almost impossible. We were curious about whether you're going to um, approach community benefit in a similar way as in Europe, where developers of offshore and onshore wind projects often commit to providing a fixed amount per kilowatt hour into a fund that community groups can use for socioeconomic development projects. Are there any plans to do something like that here? We've already talked about the importance of having an important social, positive social effect on the local communities and our commitment for delivering that. So that commitment is there and there's multiple ways of achieving that goal. We're always cautious about replicating formula that work elsewhere because every local community is different, have different needs, different aspirations. So yeah, there's good case examples, but we, we always avoid copycatting uh, what has been done elsewhere. That usually doesn't work. You really need to start from scratch everywhere and start by listening what is the aspiration from the local communities. That's what we're doing right now. And then we will develop together formulas that can achieve a positive social impact. Sometimes it's a fault. Sometimes it's about investing on training more than just providing uh, those funds. Sometimes it's about dedicating a shared effort for, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm inventing, but for protecting the environment or for addressing any social issue which is specific to this area. So again, the commitment is there. We'll find formulas for that social impact to, to happen, but we are not of the opinion that just copying what has worked somewhere else will work here. I will be very cautious about it. So the first step for Carlos and for Blue Float 
is to engage. And that dialogue won't just be limited to this phase. It will continue throughout the project's development, construction, and operation. As for when the next phase will be triggered, that's going to be a political decision. As soon as the government uh, approves legislation that allows to secure seabed leases, we will move into a phase of consenting, environmental consenting. We need to analyze all the potential impacts on the local ecosystems, local species, local activities. And it's not just about environment, it's just about the, the social impact. We need to uh, explain how the project will impact these activities, how we're going to make sure that the impact is limited to the minimum, and if there's any um, mitigation measure to be implemented, what type of mitigation uh, measures. All of that is reviewed by um, state agencies that uh, scrutinize every single aspect of the project before getting to any approval, which always comes with a number of mitigation measures to be, to be implemented. That's very important to highlight because the fact that is definitely not a free check to do whatever we want at sea. And in parallel to this, we will be developing a technical solution, engineering, so that eventually we are able to finance these projects and execute them uh, to supply clean power to the, to the Nova Scotians. What's the, the scale of what you're hoping to accomplish? Yeah, we always question about putting figures here because it really depends on how good we do things, well we, we prepare for that. But it's very significant. We're talking about thousands of potential uh, new jobs not only doing construction, but operate, the operation phase is also very people intensive. We need people to operate the vessels that allow us to get to the wind farm. We need people to maintain the, the wind farms to supervise them. Usually these wind farms have a control center that works 24 seven. So yeah, the, the operational phase will require so tens or even hundreds of technicians and all that is adding to the, to the previous figure. I think it's worth mentioning in a business like energy that has traditionally been more a male industry. We want renewables and offshore wind in particular to be uh, a very diverse and uh, equal sector that can attract all the talent uh, from different profiles. And definitely gender equality is absolutely critical for attracting the best talent. Blue Float needs a huge workforce of thousands of people because they're aiming to produce a huge amount of energy. The metric we're using for the capacity of these wind farms is the megawatt. And for a province that today has uh, around 3,000 megawatts of installed capacity, mostly coal generation capacity, what we're trying to achieve is at least one 1.5 thousand megawatts of offshore wind development, replacing that coal generation capacity and hence dramatically reduce CO2 emissions in the province. But that's just the first step. In the longer run, we believe that Nova Scotia can be the battery of Canada, but also the battery of other countries. We've recently uh, seen the visit of um, the German Chancellor to Canada with a very high topic on the agenda, which is the supply of green hydrogen. Everywhere in the, in, in the world, green hydrogen and offshore wind go hand in hand. Everybody knows that these two industries will develop together. They are very different, but very complementary. When you're thinking about green hydrogen, you're looking for massive, green, affordable power. And that's exactly what offshore wind can deliver in Nova Scotia. Beyond this first phase that I was commenting before, there's the potential to develop many more megawatts in the future that can feed in green hydrogen plants. And there's different projects already on the development industry that can so. 
um, so that uh, hopefully one day soon, Nova Scotia can be one of the big exporters of green hydrogen to fuel the global economy in a very sustainable manner. If green hydrogen wasn't developing at the same time, would this place be less attractive? The attractiveness of the of, of the province is to a significant extent linked to, to green hydrogen. Um, but in order to attract big investments, you need to have a lower perspective about new developments. This will not all come from the green hydrogen. When I say green hydrogen, I would like to forget other energy intensive industries. This is probably the more visible ones, but there's also potential for other types of green commodities like uh, anything from steel, aluminum, or fertilizers, just to give a few examples. So all that provides a longer term perspective about new developments that is very important to justify these investments. There's also the possibility, although that is more subject to the political will on, on the two countries, to connect the province to um, the northeast of the U.S. That will make a lot of sense because the potential for uh, green power export is huge. And there's a need, there's a demand for that power in states like uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, or or Connecticut. But um, that is always tricky. There's, there needs to be a very strong political will to, to get there. Uh, we are part of the, the initiatives to sponsor these type of interconnections, but we, we are conscious that they will take some time to materialize. Here in the Strait area, at least, the political will and the culture of collaboration is strong. Carlos experienced it for himself during his first visit to the Strait area this fall. The cornerstone of that visit was a ceremony where Blue Float signed an MOU with the Cape Breton Partnership and joined the Strait Area Chamber of Commerce and the Strait of Canso Offshore Wind Task Force. It was also an opportunity to meet many stakeholders face-to-face. Carlos says the visit made a big impression on him and was a turning point for Blue Float's relationship with the area. It was a fantastic attendance, and it was quite amazing to see uh, everybody from regional ministers, majors, leaders of industry associations. Our First Nations representatives were blessed by the presence from um, Elder Marshall, who made a fantastic speech talking about learning from the mistakes from the past, uh, but looking to learn from those to create a better future, looking for the next generations. We had uh, students attending the that session and we're very interested in learning about what are the opportunities in this sector, the growth prospects and so on and so forth. And I think they went out of that meeting with even more motivation than when they arrived about working in this, in this sector. So when you hear, um, the, uh, traditional, uh, owners of the land, when you hear industrials, the civil servants, decision makers, the younger generation all aligned, it was a, an inspiration and I came back fully energized and convinced that offshore wind will happen. Another way Blue Float will be connecting to the community is through a supply chain. Like most companies, Blue Float will need to buy products and services from other local companies in order to get things done. As an emerging industry, some of what they need will be available, but some will have to be developed. We are mapping what is in, in the province already, and there's a lot. I must admit that these are very good bases for bigger companies to, to, to source from. The main potential for job creation and value creation, in our view, is on the foundation side, which in offshore wind is a big part of the, of the investment. The province has very strong capabilities in concrete foundations, 
I think there's many services that can be contacted. And here at Nova Scotia, because it's an Atlantic province and it has a long tradition of uh, working at sea, has very strong capabilities in um, in shipping, in um, maritime logistics, uh, maritime operations, training for health and safety in maritime environments, which is absolutely paramount for our job. So all that I think are very important. I would also like to mention uh, higher skill. Well, all these skill. These jobs are highly skilled because they're very specialized work, but we also need to innovate in this industry. Uh, innovation is constant. So there's a big opportunity for engineers, for research centers to participate in the global search for better solutions that can reduce impacts, that can reduce costs, and that can make this industry ever more sustainable moving forward. So it's really quite wide. Now we are very conscious that things will not happen by themselves. They happen if we make them happen. So apart from mapping, we, need, we are committed, and that was part of the discussions and the commitments we have made during this trip. We are very much committed to work with the global companies and with the local supply chain. What all this means is that BlueFloat getting established in the Strait area will not only support many local businesses, but will also drive the creation of new local businesses. To help us get a deeper understanding of how projects like Blue Float, Bearhead, and Everwind will impact existing companies in the Strait area, I talked to one of them. My name is uh, Peter Murphy, and I am the contract manager for Switzer Canada, based in uh, Halifax as our main office, but our operation is here in uh, the Strait of Canso. Switzer is wholly owned by the AP Moeller Maersk Group. Maersk is a container line and one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. Switzer is the largest tugboat company in the world. Their Canadian presence is relatively small, for now anyway, with three tugs in the Strait of Canso. They've been here since 2010, when they won a contract with Newstar. Then they established more of a presence by serving Port Hawkesbury Paper, Martin Marietta, and Nova Scotia Power as well. But things took an interesting turn when Newstar sold their terminal to Everwind. So um, whenever Wynn purchased the terminal, um, the Switzer uh, tugs and the contract came along with that, and we've uh, continued to provide a good service to the terminal. We have aligned goals in terms of a green uh, energy transition. Switzer and Maersk are committed to uh, greening of the fleet and to be uh, good corporate citizens in that regard. So we have a, a great relationship with Everwind. Um, our goals are aligned, and uh, it's very exciting for the future. One of those aligned goals is to quite literally combine both of their products. We uh, locally here have signed an MOU with Everwind to develop uh, the first ammonia-powered tug. And uh, so we're very excited. We're working with them to, uh, to develop that tug and that technology and to participate in, in the greening of uh, the world and, and this local area right here. In terms of uh, our decarbonization goals, um, we have a program called EcoTow, and you could look this up uh, on the Spitzer website, where uh, we provide green uh, tug solutions. And right now, the primary fuel we're burning there is uh, called HVO, and it's basically biofuel uh, sourced from only used oils. So it could be French fry oil, but it has to be used. And so we have uh, some of our operations in the UK are 100% uh, carbon-free. Oh, very cool. But I guess on yeah, uh, yeah. on an efficiency perspective, is there is there sort of a preference for the um, the green ammonia? Well, you know, there's only so much biofuel. I guess is you know it's it's a finite resource. So uh, really, the future fuels are are certainly methanol, 
ammonia. I mean, we are, and Mariscar have built methanol-fueled ships. But ammonia is, is uh, something a little bit newer, especially in a tugboat application. But we are very excited to do this because it really is a super green fuel. And it, my own personal feeling is that this may be the winner in the green fuels in the future. Peter expects that Switzer's local involvement with offshore wind and green hydrogen will only grow as the industry expands. We certainly are hopeful for growth, and we are, and we do keep in contact with all of the uh, the major players uh, in the industry uh, to be able to provide a service. That's that's part of Switzer's goal is uh, sustainable marine services, and how can we help our customers? What do they need? And we listen to our customers very carefully, um, and to, to to try and work with them to uh, to promote uh, the economic benefits uh, in the strait. Are you also planning for or thinking of? expanding beyond uh, tugboats, you know, because Maersk has all sorts of expertise. So um, is is that in the future? Right. So um, I can only speak to Switzer, uh, but I certainly, in my conversations with some of my colleagues down south and uh, in the organization uh, about the wind opportunities, uh, Maersk has a, a division that deals with wind, wind energy, wind development, offshore wind I'm talking about. And so, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, it's something that I'm, I know is being looked at and, and I know will be, be involved with, uh, for sure. Mm, interesting. And what aspect of offshore wind are they involved in? Right. That would be in the initial construction phase. So we have specialized ships to install wind turbines. And then, of course, there's, once they're installed, there's a servicing aspect. And so we, we do A to Z. Uh, Maersk can provide all of those services. So obviously, you've got your, your big contracts um, and your big customers. No, you're also part of a, a supply chain, and there are companies that you, you work with and buy from. Could you talk a little bit about those companies in the straight area? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we, we have extensive relationships with local companies, uh, both on the, uh, the supply of goods and services to the tugs, and that's everywhere from uh, uh, groceries and, and uh, other products, uh, paint products, et cetera, for the tug. But we also deal a lot with uh, various companies that provide uh, welding services, fabrication services, uh, technology services. So it's uh, very important that we have those services uh, locally as well for us to, to operate. And, uh, and we have some very good suppliers here. And do you feel like you, you have everything you need in the straight area or maybe not literally everything, but most of what you need? You know, everything is here pretty much. I mean, you, you, you know, there always can be more, and, and we think that that's coming as, as things develop here and, uh, you know, more and more trades, more uh, technological services that can exist here. It's just a function of how big the marine industry and the other industries develop here that those, those will come on board. So now that's Peter and Carlos who are saying that there are a lot of opportunities coming down the pipeline with this emerging industry. That includes if you're a small business owner, or maybe you're not even a small business owner yet, just someone with entrepreneurial aspirations. There's some opportunity for you too. We're going back to Amanda and Brenda, who say that the supply chain opportunities aren't just about big companies providing big service to big industry. Amanda illustrated with a story. One of the great examples I saw of that when we traveled to Denmark, to, to Wind Europe, we took an opportunity to tour the, the port of Esbjerg. And, um, you know, touring the port, we were, you know, the CEO was giving us sort of a rundown on the lay of the land. And, and what struck me was that every one of the nacelles that were lined up, um, ready to be deployed to, to an offshore wind farm, was sitting on a metal stand. 
And that metal stand is fabricated by a local company in the community. And that's their business. So, so if you think about, you know, that, that fabrication opportunity didn't exist before the, this industry did, you know, that's supply chain support as well. So it's not all about big, big, big. It can also be about small business and, and well, big opportunities for small businesses, right? So I think we have a lot to learn on, on the supply chain. I, you know, I can tell you, I think we have some in place now, but I think there's a lot of room for growth. Yeah, so I would encourage people to put their entrepreneurial hats on as, as things start to unfold. And their services too, right? Not just, not just manufacturing, like having divers locally who can like right. go under the boats and fix a propeller. Yeah. Um, IT, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. And we uh, hear a lot from safety, like. Yeah, we hear a lot from, yeah. um, you know, our current uh, developers around human resource management, you know, so there's a whole industry that, you know, that's emerging. Definitely lots of opportunities out there. But before these entrepreneurial opportunities can come to fruition, first the big pieces need to come together. Carlos is confident that this industry is going to get off the ground, but he does warn that there are going to be some ups and downs, and we shouldn't be discouraged by that. We've talked about all the potential, and I'm, I, I've tried to convey the idea that this is a massive opportunity because we believe it's a massive opportunity. But we shouldn't forget there's going to be problems, there's going to be many hurdles. I'm optimistic, but an optimistic is not somebody who believes that problems will not occur. An optimistic is somebody who believes that those problems will be overcome. And the only way to overcome that is by working together and uh, in, a, in a very trustful manner. There will be problems, there will be difficulties, there will be conflicts. That is okay, that is perfectly normal. So far as you manage to address those, the first projects are always the most difficult ones. They are more difficult to to develop because you're learning uh, and you have to address many issues that eventually will not um, be repeated in, in the second or third projects. But for that second or third project to happen, we need to make sure that uh, the local communities perceive this as a force for good and that they can perceive that they benefit from these developments. That will be the best proof of success in, uh, in the job we do. It has taken 46 minutes. 46 tightly edited minutes to get through everything that's happening behind the scenes to build an offshore wind and green hydrogen industry in the Strait area. It's a lot. Let's circle back one more time to Amanda and Brenda. I gave them an opportunity to provide some closing words on how they're feeling about the future of the Strait area. We're so excited. We're like, Bobby, can't wait to talk to Michelle Sampson. To talk about the future of the Strait region. Anyways, of course, we're super optimistic uh, about the future. You know, we know there's still a lot to cover to make sure that we are, are, you know, partnering with as many as we can, making sure it's an inclusive process. We're continuing to try our best to recruit uh, new members to to the task force. Um, You know, we do have some like groups that we'd like to get in front of still. Uh, you know, but but at the end of the day, we're really excited uh, to see what the future holds. And we really want to maintain uh, our historic place as being the energy hub of the province. And, you know, maybe that can be of uh, the Atlantic region and potentially of the whole nation. From my perspective in Richmond County, we, you know, we have come a long way. My message to constituents right now is I think we can be cautiously optimistic. It's safe to be cautiously optimistic. One of the reasons that I'm excited is because of what this is going to mean for our communities and our ability to reinvest in them. 
We know we've had a declining population. We kind of leveled off in the last census. Anecdotally, we feel more people have moved home. We're, we're looking forward to the next count on that. Um, but at the end of the day, when you have a stagnant population and your costs are increasing, unless you're looking at significant economic development moves like this, um, your, your taxes are going up and your cost of living is going up. There's no way around it um, because we, ha we have budgets just like I have a household budget. We have a municipal budget, right? It's the nasty reality of, of living in a rural community is, is we, we have very limited financial resources. So, so that's one of the reasons I'm really feeling positive about the future and what it's going to enable us to do mm -hmm. um, on, on the cultural side, on the sport and recreation side, and Absolutely. like all of the things that make this a really great place to live, you know, or could make it an even better place to live. Yeah. You know, I, I put it in, in, a, in a, a phrase the other day and got a, got a good laugh out of somebody I was speaking to. But really, this work is about Sunday dinner, right? It's about making sure that your kids and your grandkids are home yeah. and living or close enough by that they can come over for Sunday dinner or lunch or mimosas or whatever it is you're going to have with them, right? You know, it's, it does, yeah. it's, it's really about bringing families together. And bringing them home, bringing, yeah. you know, keeping them together. And, you know, I, I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who works in a very traditional industry. And he, he said, well, I'm not too sure about this, but maybe there'll be some opportunities for my kids, you know, and maybe that maybe I'll be able to see my grandkids on a regular basis. And, and really, that's, you know, that's what we're trying to achieve here. Oh, you guys are going to make me cry. <laughs> Where are you living right now? I'm home. I was in Ontario. I'm back. Oh, well, thank I, God. Yeah. You were like booking your plane tickets if not. <laughs> oh, it's good to be home. Before closing this out, I want to pass along a couple final, final messages from Amanda and Brenda. First is a huge thank you to the current members of the Strait of Canso Offshore Wind Task Force. Second is that they encourage you, the public, to reach out for more information on what's happening with this industry and how it will affect you. There's a link to the task force webpage in the show notes with contact details for both Brenda and Amanda. The show notes are also where you can find links for Blue Float and Spitzer. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Bearhead Energy. Next time on Invest in Cape Breton, we're tackling a very hot topic, housing and development. Hit the follow button to be notified when it drops. Our theme music is Under My Skin by Glace Bay's own Elise Aaron. Invest in Cape Breton is produced by Storied Places Media, a proudly Cape Breton-owned business operated by me, Michelle Sampson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>